just a straightforward question today in a serious talk. Is anybody hopeless? I mean, it, it probably, if we answer that question emotionally, it's going to depend upon how we feel. If we're answering that in a general sense, we say, oh, nobody's hopeless. Or if it's somebody that we like, well, of course, nobody's hopeless. But on the other hand, if it's somebody we don't like or somebody who's committed some horrible crime, we sort of want to feel like maybe they are hopeless, that maybe they've gone past the point of no return. So I want to do something today. I want to take it outside the realm of the emotional, and I'd like for us to just really think about that question. Is there anybody that's hopeless? And let's be sure we know what we mean by hopeless. What I mean by hopeless is you have life left to live, but there's no opportunity to turn around. You, you have days left to live, but we're, we're just marking time until life closes. So is it possible for anybody to be hopeless? Just a couple of things before we get into the talk today. One of my issues with 21st century America is that every once in a while I hear people say things like this. You know, when you're a Christian or if you're a person of faith, you have to leave your brain checked at the door. I heard that even growing up, that if, a person, if you're a person of faith, you really can't think anymore. It's just a matter of indoctrination. Well, for those of you who know me, I've been honest about this through the years. Spirituality comes hard for me. And I'm the kind of person who can't check my brain at the doorstep. I want to keep thinking. And you know what? I want that for you. Whenever you come in here to New Spring, I want you to think. You know, I have friends who attend New Spring who are non-theists. And they'll tell me from time to time, Mark, you know, we don't agree with what you're saying, but we like listening to you talk. To that, I say, thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you're an agnostic here today and you're saying, Mark, I hope you know I don't agree with you. Thank you so much for just letting me have a seat at your table. I don't, take any, I don't take any offense at that at all. In fact, you're who gets me up in the morning. Or it could be that you walk out of here and you say, well, you know, I agree, I agree with some of what you said, but there's some of what you said I don't agree with. You know what? As long as you're thinking about it, really thinking it through, I love that. I'm fine with that. In fact, I would want you to be that way. None of us should drink the Kool-Aid. We shouldn't drink the Kool-Aid with religion, and we shouldn't drink the Kool-Aid with the, with the world at large, too. You need to think. And so I want you to think, and you should think. So you should think through this message today. We're asking the question, is anybody hopeless? We're going to think. We're not going to shoot from the hip, and we're not going to answer this emotionally. The other issue I have, and this is getting more prolific today, is that people will think they know what the Bible says, but they never really open it to discover it. If you're holding a Bible in your lap, or if you've got an electronic device with 1,100 plus chapters in your Bible, I think you realize the Bible says a lot of things. Now, we live in a culture today where the idea is all the Bible says is God loves everybody and he's cool with anything anyone wants to do. Well, that's half true. God does love everybody, but he isn't cool with anything anyone wants to do. I mean, you wouldn't even be a good parent, those of you who are parents, if you were cool with anything. The Bible's a big book and it says a whole lot. So here's what we're going to do today. As we think, we're going to see what the Bible actually says, and then you can think about it and you can, you can take it home. Because I really do think... We need to wrestle with this question, is anybody hopeless? Is anybody hopeless? And most of all, I want to know, am I hopeless? Well, I want to take you to a verse of scripture that if somebody came to me and said, Mark, for the rest of your career, you can only preach from one verse. I think I'd pick this one because I could preach every week for years and I would never get all the messages that's in this one simple verse. So if you ever want to see the Bible summed up, try 1 Peter 3.18. Here we go. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
That's a lot of messages in one verse, isn't it? Let, let's unpack that. I, I mean, the first one is Christ suffered. Let's set that aside for a moment and come back to it. Christ suffered for sins. So if, if you have a cross on your, on your person today or you have a cross in your artwork at home or if you have a cross on your shirt, then you know the reason why Jesus is on the cross. He is on the cross for sins, for sins. Sin is anything that is opposite to the nature of God. Let me ask you a question. How many sins will be paid for? I mean, how many, what, what percentage of sins do you think God will demand payment for? And we live in a world today where a lot of people have the idea was God is like the Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky, and it's like, y'all play nice now and try to do okay, try to do better. How many sins will actually be paid for? What's the percentage? A hundred. Every single sin will be paid for one way or another. So you understand that when Jesus was on the cross, he was on the cross for sins. Then he, the Bible says once for all. It's not something he does every six months because when he died for sins, he did a job well done. There was no more requirement for anything to have happen because he died for sins once for all. And then I think this is my favorite line, the righteous for the unrighteous. You know, if I'd been God and I'd been dreaming this up, I would have sent my son Jesus to the world to find the top 10% of people in the world, save them, maybe the top 30%, and the rest of them would have to go to hell. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus came into our world, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. You know what? The weird thing about this, if you feel like you're a good person and you don't need God's help, you are the closest person in this room to actually being hopeless. On the other hand, if you feel like a sinner and wonder how God could have anything to do with you, you're not hopeless. You're right at ground zero of the person that Jesus came to reach. He's the righteous coming for the unrighteous. He didn't come to find the top 10 best. He came to find those who knew they were sinners and would be open to receiving him as a savior. Well, let's read it one more time. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. People have told me through the years, and I've heard this, and I know they mean well, and I kind of understand what they mean by it. But I've had people say, Mark, I've always been with God. I, I just, I was born with God. No, nobody is with God at the beginning. The fact of the matter is our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and left us in a condition of, of being separated from God. And all of us have added our own piles of sin, and that separates us from God. But the good news is Jesus Christ suffered for sins once for all, righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. This is why, you know, every week of the year that I, I'm on stage, week after week, five times a week, I stand before you and say, let religion go. Let go of religion. Let go of your own sense of worthiness. And just come and embrace Christ. Because he is the righteous for the unrighteous who died for sins once for all that he might bring us to God. That's the story of the gospel. Well, I want to go now back to the first part of the verse because that's where my focus is today. And that is on the words, Christ suffered. Christ suffered. I'm wearing a cross today. It's made out of some kind of metal. Some of you have crosses on that are made of gold or silver. And that's good. We do that because the cross is a universal symbol of Christianity or Jesus. But, you know, I wonder sometimes if the cross doesn't kind of become sanitized to us. If it's not a sort of jewelry store Christianity. 
Or even, I'll be honest with you, five times a week when I tell you how to have a relationship with God, the expression will just roll off my tongue, Jesus Christ died for your sins. And I'm cognizant even while I'm on stage that when I say Jesus died for your sins, it can almost sound cliche. Hey, if Jesus suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, maybe we need to take a few moments to unpack that expression, Christ suffered. Because you know the thing of it is, you could say, well, Mark, it's almost lunchtime, and I'd really just not like to talk about anything unpleasant. But wait a minute. If our only chance of getting into heaven and being forgiven is the fact that Christ suffered for us, then maybe we need to put that ahead of our lunch for a few moments and think about the fact that Christ suffered for us. Let's talk. You know, of course, that the religious powers hated Jesus, and they wanted him crucified. They wanted him dead. This is interesting. This is, I don't know. This may be more than you want to know, but it's interesting. The Bible is an extraordinary book. The prophecies contained in Scripture are mind-boggling sometimes. You do realize that if Jesus had been executed by the Jewish powers, he would have been stoned to death because that was their mode of execution. But because he happened to be in the first century, the mode of execution was crucifixion. Mode of, of, of capital punishment was crucifixion. Now, here's where it gets really interesting to me. Did you know that in Psalm 22, there's a very graphic depiction of crucifixion? In other words, Jesus' crucifixion is predicted in Psalm 22. Most of you know Psalm 23, but do you know it's the middle psalm of a trilogy of prophetic psalms about Jesus? Paul talked about the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Hey, not right now, but when you get home, read Psalm 24 and see if it's not an exultant story of the resurrection of Jesus. Read Psalm 23. You know those words. It's as if Jesus is preaching his own funeral. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. But when you go into Psalm 22, it is the most graphic depiction of crucifixion you will ever see. The psalmist writes, they pierced my hands and my feet. You know what's interesting about that? That was 300 years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion. And now here we have Jesus, just according to God's schedule in the first century. And when the powers that were wanted him executed, the form was crucifixion. The Roman governor was Pilate at that time, and so in order to get Jesus executed, the religious powers had to get the Romans to sign off on it. Hey, the Romans didn't care anything about religion. And Pilate, the governor of, of Judea, well, he was a man that was cold and brutal, but he had some sense of ethics, and so when he has his prophet standing before him, he's going to judge him to find out if he should be executed. And Pilate can't find any fault in Jesus. And Pilate knows how awful crucifixion is. The last thing he wants is some innocent man to be crucified. We'll talk about this some other day, but Pilate's got problems back in Rome. See, he doesn't want his name to come up before the Caesar. The guy who got Pilate appointed to his place, he's in trouble with the emperor. In fact, the emperor is killing this guy and his friends and his associates. Pilate wants things quiet in Judea. He doesn't want his name to come up in Rome. So the last thing he needs is a riot on his hands demanding that this meaningless prophet be executed. But on the other hand, Pilate wants to push this as long as he can to keep it from happening. So here's what he decides to do. He decides that he's going to have Jesus scourged. Because after all, if these people are thirsty for blood, let them see his blood. You read this in John chapter 19 where Pilate had Jesus scourged. That doesn't just mean whipped. No, there were whips, yeah, that 
you know, a person would bring a whip down on the back of a poor victim, and the whip, the leather thongs would concuss on the back of the victim, but that's not what scourging was. The Roman form of scourging led a man's hands to be tied up high above his waist so that the skin of the back would be pulled taut. And the Roman lictor would take a whip with a handle and nine leather thongs, and in those leather thongs would be jagged bits of metal and broken glass and bone fragments. So that as I say, the whip just wouldn't concuss on the back. When the lictor brought the whip down, it would embed in the back. And as he pulled the whip up, it would literally rip the skin off the person, sometimes exposing vital organs. And the Romans were skilled at this. They knew how to bring a person just to the point of death but keep them alive. See, Pilate wanted to embarrass Jesus, hurt Jesus. The people that hated him, Pilate wanted to find some middle ground. By the way, you can't find any middle ground with Jesus. Pilate wanted to find middle ground with Jesus where he could abuse him real bad, but he could salve his own conscience for not killing an innocent man. And so he brings Jesus out to them. Isaiah would say he was so abused that he didn't even look human anymore. But that didn't stop the crowd because the crowd in Luke 23, 21 kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, what's crucifixion? Crucifixion, and I've chosen these words carefully. Crucifixion is state-sponsored terrorism. See, the Romans wanted to find a way to so brutalize someone who did wrong that no one would ever think about doing what this person did. At the time Jesus was crucified, no Roman citizen, regardless of how heinous his crime is, no Roman citizen can be crucified. Cicero, the historian, said Romans ought to just try to get it out of their heads. It was so ugly to look at. Crucifixion was meant and designed to, to inflict as much torture as possible. And it was a particularly slow death. In fact, the term excruciating comes from the Latin, from the cross. In fact, I'm not going to, please don't do it now. I know many of you could, but if you want to study crucifixion, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. Just, just pull up the Wiki, Wikipedia page on it and take a look at crucifixion. And what you'll discover is there are a lot of things you know about crucifixion. There's some tortures of crucifixion that are so brutal, I dare not even mention them in an audience like this. Crucifixion was an awful death. In fact, I'll just take the words from Wikipedia. Gruesome, horrific, public. Now, victims usually were tied to the crosses. Some of you have seen pictures of Jesus being crucified between the two thieves, and the two thieves are tied to the cross while Jesus is nailed there. We really have the, and I'll explain why in a moment, we really have that a little bit backward. Because you see, the Romans normally tied people to the cross unless they had to chase a fugitive. Many of us have seen stories on television about when the police have to chase people and how that their adrenaline can pump, and sometimes a police officer can become angry having to chase someone. I understand that. If the Romans really had to work hard to chase somebody, what they would do is when they finally got them on the cross, they would nail them to the cross as if to say, there, you won't get loose from us now. And be, between you and me, I'm guessing at the reason why Jesus wound up getting nailed to the cross, well, we're getting now to what our message is about today. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. But these are guys who have made things really hard on Rome. Rome has had to chase these guys a long time. And so when they get these two guys on a cross, they decide, hey, we're going to nail them there. And Jesus wound up in the middle. He wound up with them and got nailed to the cross too. Let's talk about these two thieves. 
Because we often say Jesus was crucified between two thieves. But the truth of the matter is, thief doesn't say it. These were mayhem makers. These were guys who upset order. They terrorized. I think it would be safe to say they were home invaders. Or maybe a a more common term for today would be they were serial killers. So no wonder Rome crucified them. And Jesus winds up crucified in the middle of two mayhem makers, home invaders, serial killers. Well, let's finish talking about Christ's suffering for a moment. Here's how a person died on the cross. You understand, if you will, please, that with the hands nailed to the cross and to the Roman world, the hand was anything from the tip of the middle finger to the elbow. So I don't know that Jesus' hands were pierced in the palm. They may have been. Most likely, the nail went in right under the heel of the hand. And then the legs would be crossed so that the ankles would be one over the other and there'd be a single nail driven through the tender skin of the ankle. So a person on the cross, his issue would be the gravity of his body would pull his head down into his chest cavity, cutting off his breath. And so in order to breathe on the cross, a person would have to pull against the nails that held his hands and push off against the single nail that held his ankles for every breath of air just to fill his breath with his chest with a little bit of air so he could go back to dying. Some of you will remember that when Jesus died, the thieves were still living, and it was coming close to the end of Passover. What did they have to do with the two thieves? They broke their legs so that they couldn't push off against the nail anymore. Christ suffered. Let's embrace that today. Let's not run past that too fast. Christ suffered. Instantly, I'm greeted with two questions. And the first question I have is, why? Why Jesus? If you're asking me why those two serial killers are on the cross, I know the answer to that. But why Jesus? Why is Jesus there? Some of you guys can remember when Mel Gibson brought out his movie a decade ago on the, on the Passion of the Christ, and some of our Jewish friends became greatly concerned that they might be the targets of invective, that they would be the convenient targets of anti-Semitism, because people might blame the Jewish people for executing Jesus. But if you, if you read the Bible, you'll discover that the Bible doesn't say it's the Jewish people that put Jesus on the cross. Oh, was it the Romans? Well, physically, I guess they put him on the cross, but the Romans are not responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. I've had people tell me that we're responsible. And in a way, I think that's true. But even though it might be for our sins that he's there, we didn't have the power to put him on the cross. Would you like to know who put Jesus on the cross? Get a grip. In the book of Isaiah 53, the Bible says, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is on the cross because his father put him on the cross. Jesus is on the cross because he decided to go to the cross. Don't you know before he ever stepped out of heaven to go to Bethlehem's manger, he was on a rescue mission and he knew he was on a rescue mission? This is why when he came to the cross, nobody had to force him down. He lay down willingly and put his hands on the cross. It was God's plan. God's plan from the very beginning. Someone will say, well, I don't understand that. God's not asking us to understand it. God is asking us to to realize that is the wisdom of God. Now, what is the wisdom of God in putting Christ on the cross? Look at this. When his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. I think this is maybe the holy of holies of the Bible. Verse 11, when he, the father, sees all that is accomplished by Jesus' anguish, 
He will be satisfied. Do you remember a few moments ago, I told you every sin has to be paid for. Well, that's like an outstanding bill. And please understand, when Jesus is on the cross, he's paying a bill. He is paying God back for every wrong thing every one of the billions of human beings have ever done. And the Bible says that when God the Father looked down and saw the anguish of his son, God was satisfied as if God said, paid in full. Guys, this is why I tell you to let go of religion. This is why I tell you to let go of any sense of being good enough to get to heaven. You don't need it. Your sins have been paid for by Christ. God has already received payment for it. Why would you worry? Why would you doubt? Why would you fear? Why would you feel hopeless when your sins have already been paid for long before you were born? And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Why is that important? Because Romans 3 says nobody's righteous. Who's here who's righteous enough to go to heaven? No one. There was no one righteous. No, not one. And yet Jesus made it possible for many to be counted righteous. That's why he's on the cross. But now the second question is a little darker. And that's the question... To save us from what? Or maybe we could ask the same question a different way. We could ask the question, where are these two guys going at the end of the day? These two thieves. Because if Jesus is dying on the cross and he's, being, he's suffering all that brutality, what is he there to save us from? This is the last subject I want to talk about. In fact, John Shore, writing for the Huffington Post, said, I think it's reasonable to say, and it's certainly been my experience writing about Christianity here on Huffington Post, that nothing keeps more people shunning Christianity than does the doctrine of hell as a real place. I don't mean to put words in his mouth. What John Shore is saying is, if you Christians want to sell people on Christianity, you need to drop hell. Well, I, I'm not trying to sell anybody. I have to embrace the truth just like everybody else. And so when we ask the question, what is Jesus on the cross to save us from? Well, the answer is hell. And somebody can say, well, I don't like fire and brimstone preachers. And I don't either. If you're talking about attitude, I, I agree with you. But if you're talking about, I don't think there's a hell because I don't like the idea, that would be like saying when you go to your doctor, I don't want to go to that heart disease, infection, virus, cancer doctor. You and I understand your doctor, the doctor, she doesn't talk to you about cancer or heart disease or diabetes because she wants you to have it. She wants you to be treated, cured, or avoid it. That little white spot came up on me about the size of a pin. I, went to, I freak over everything. I went to my GP, and he said, I don't think it's anything to worry about. If it stays there, though, you might want to have it removed. And I'm thinking, I don't want to wait to see if it stays there. <laughs> great New Springer is a surgeon, and he took it off and did the pathology, and a week later, he said it was precancerous. I'd have been a fool, wouldn't I, to just say, I don't want to go talk to that doctor. I don't want that doctor to talk to me about something I don't want to hear about. I mean, sure, nobody enjoys, you know, getting a PSA exam or, or getting a mammogram. Nobody enjoys that, but we, why do we do it? Because we know somebody's got our best interest at heart, and I think it's high time. If hell really does exist... I think it's time we had an honest talk about it. Well, who should we let talk to us? You know, some wild-eyed prophet from the Old Testament? That'd be okay. How about we let Jesus talk to us about it? 
Because when you see him dying on the middle cross, you understand if anybody wants to talk to us about hell, why not Jesus? In fact, nobody talked more in the Bible about hell than Jesus, not even close. He talked about it all the time. I want to give you one story. And the reason why the story is important to me is that every once in a while people will say, well, I, I think, you know, we have all our hell here on earth. Not even close. Not a chance. We have tough times, but we don't have hell. Or people will say, I think hell is a state of mind. Or I think it's just sort of a, uh, you know, it's, it's all, all the things about hell are metaphorical. Well, if one might think that, I want to take you to a specific story of Jesus. And this is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. And he's telling the story about two men who die. One guy's a street guy. He's a poor man. He lives on the street. His name is Lazarus. He's dying. He's got a disease. He's starving. Some friends figured that the best thing they can do is just drop him at the gate of this rich man who is unnamed in the story. And some of you who grew up in Sunday school can remember that this poor man asked for the crumbs that fell from the table. I know we're getting close to lunch, but let me tell you what that means, okay? Rich people back then didn't use napkins. They used bread. So to wipe their greasy hands, they would tear off a piece of bread and wipe their hands on the bread and then throw the bread under the table for the dogs. And poor Lazarus is just asking for the napkins. He's just asking for the table scraps. Well, they die. Lazarus dies and goes to heaven. The rich man who is unnamed, because it's interesting how eternity changes things. The rich man dies and wakes up in hell. I want to pick up Jesus' story there. And here's my question for you. Listen to how Jesus describes hell and see how metaphorical it sounds. See if he's talking about a state of mind or a place. Let's work. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell and in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus in his lap or at his side. He called out, Father, Abraham, mercy, have mercy. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, child, and this is the scariest part, remember. In other words, people who are in hell right now, remember that they don't have to be there. Child, remember that in your lifetime, you got the good things and Lazarus, the bad things. It's not like that here. Here, he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides, in all these matters, there's a huge chasm set between us so that no one can go from us to you, even if he wanted to, nor can anyone cross over from you to us. The rich man said, then let me ask you, father, send him to the house of my father where I have five brothers so he can tell them the score and warn them so they don't end up here in this place of torment. That's Jesus' story. Well, it's safe to say these two guys are going. That's where they're headed. They're headed for hell. When sundown comes, unless something changes, these two guys are going to open their eyes in hell. The idea that everybody goes to a better place, we just saw that knocked out of the you know, we saw that knocked out of realm by Jesus. So what about these two guys on either side, these two serial killers who are being crucified with Jesus? Well, it's sort of interesting to watch the progression that happens. Because as you know, Jesus is crucified there, there on the two thieves are on the outside. The leaders on the ground are taunting Jesus. And all of a sudden, of all things, the two serial killers join in and start trash-talking Jesus too. In Matthew 27, in the same way the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Greek language means they started to taunt him. Mark 15, 32, they that were crucified with him reproached him. That means they kept it up. 
Once they started the trash talking, they kept it up. And one of the thieves, the guy who never changed over here, and one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Guys, I've got to tell you something. I've known this story ever since I can remember. I've been preaching this story since I was 16. I learned something this week for the first time. I looked at this in the original language. I never knew till this week that this thief, when he said, aren't you the Christ, he said it in a positive inference. In other words, he didn't say, aren't you the Christ, as if he doubted Christ. He didn't say it, though he didn't believe it were true. He said it, though he believed it was true. In effect, he was saying, I know you're the Christ, but if you can't get me off this cross, I don't want anything to do with you. And there are people like that today. I believe in God, but if he can't fix my marriage, then I'm not interested in him. I believe in God, but if he can't make me a rich person, I'm not interested in him. Well, I'm so thankful that this guy over here, I don't know exactly when, the, when it happened. Was it when he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do? The Bible indicates Jesus kept saying that. And maybe as he watched Jesus crucified, brutalized, struggling for breath, that when he could get breath, he had something wonderful to say. But anyway, this thief, this, this serial killer who was on the cross next to Jesus, he said this in Luke 23, 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. That's the first thief. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Hey, that's a better sermon than most Christians will hear today in charge. The thief said to the guy, don't you understand that actions have ramifications? Don't you understand that choices have outcomes? We made a choice. And then the second thing, he said, we're getting what we deserve. The Greek word is salary. We're getting our salary for what we've done. And then he looked at Jesus and said, but this man has done nothing wrong. Hey, I've been cutting up with you ever since we started this series. And I've said, I want to see stuff on video. I want to see some of these things. Right now, before God, I give up all the other videos just to see this one. I want to see this moment. I want to see as this thief turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, Daddy, he's never been to church. He has never been to New Spring. He hasn't heard me pray the sinner's prayer five times a week. He didn't grow up in Sunday school. Nobody taught him to memorize the Bible. He doesn't even know how to ask God to save him. Probably thinks there's no chance. But he just says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Translated, he was saying, if you can do anything for me. Oh, he dares not ask to be forgiven. He's too bad. Just if you can do anything for me. Oh, he believes he's he's hopeless. He believes it about himself. He said, I deserve this. But Jesus, if you can do anything for me. Jesus answers one of the most important lines in your Bible. Jesus said, today, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Oh, you're not going to the ground. Your body may be planted out there, but not the real you. Today, to be absent from the body is to be present with God. Today, Jesus said, you You're not coming back as a squirrel or a frog or a chestnut or a feather or a breeze. (laughs) You, you, today, you will be with me 
People have had joy through the years thinking about the fact that when Jesus walked into heaven after he gave up his life, he walked in with his arms around a converted serial killer. You will be with me in paradise. Can I ask you a question today? Is there any chance that you could go to hell? You could say, Mark, I resent that question. And I understand that. I resent questions too. And maybe I shouldn't ask it. I'm sorry I did that. Why don't you ask yourself, is there any chance I might go to hell? You know that if you do go, it'll be over, it'll be over God's wishes. The Bible tells us that hell wasn't created for people. People say every once in a while, I don't see how a loving God could create a hell for people. He didn't create it for people. The Bible says it was made for Satan and his angels. But you see, the thing of it is, if a person just keeps walking past God, there's no other place to go. And the Bible says that God is not willing that anyone perish. God wants everyone to be saved. And, and if you want to know how much God, looks, God wants you in heaven, just look at Jesus on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. But you can go if you really want to. I was thinking about that a few months ago as I was thinking about this series. And I was thinking about this very sermon. And if you want to go to hell, you can. But I want you to think about something. In order to go to hell, you have to walk past three crosses. You've got to walk past the cross of this guy because he's got a message for you. His message for you is, I don't care if he is God. If he doesn't fix my broken world... If he doesn't help me, I don't care anything about him. And you, you look at this guy and you say, you know what? I think he's right. I think he's right. I agree with him. You know what? I have more in common with him than I have with the other two. I just don't think God is fear. I'm not even sure there is a God. I, I like this guy. This, this is my boy right here. I like this guy. And then you'll have to walk past that middle cross. But be careful before you walk past that cross. Because a man is up there who loves you more than you love yourself. A man is there who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. A man who is giving up the last ounce of his blood to keep you out of hell. And he's not doing it for righteous people. He's the righteous person doing it for the unrighteous. He's doing it for sinners. He's doing it for you. And you look into his face. And you look at the blood flowing down his face from the thorn crowns that sliced into the scalp. And you look into his face and say, I don't care. I don't care. I'm busy. I got my money. I got my technology. I got my stuff. I don't care. I could care less. You walk past this cross. But then you have to walk past one more cross. And I beg you to hear what this man is saying to you. Because he has a message for you. You know what he's saying to you? He's saying nobody should go to hell. Nobody has to go to hell. It doesn't matter what you've done. It can't be as bad as what I've done. It doesn't matter how little you have left to give God. You, you don't have as little as I have. But this, this guy can't get off the cross. He can't go be baptized. He can't join New Spring. He can't bring money. He can't go out and turn over a new leaf. He only has a few hours left to live. So what he's telling you is you can't have less to give God than he has. He's pleading with you. His arms, you see his arms outstretched. He's telling you nobody should go to hell. Nobody should go to hell. Nobody has to. Nobody should. He's saying to you, if I can go to heaven, you can go to heaven. But if you can walk past his cross too, the only word that comes to mind then is hopeless. 
not because God chose it, but because you chose it. For me, I can't get past that second cross. I, get, I can't get past the cross of the one who loves me enough to die for me with all my wickedness and all my faults. Let me ask you a question today. Are you going to heaven? Are you, do, you, do you have assurance in your heart that you're forgiven? You say, well, Mark, I'd love to have it. Well, you realize we're looking at a guy who got it by just simply asking Jesus, remember me, if you can do something for me. See, what God is looking for is a, a yes from your heart, a yes that believes, a yes that trusts. So I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. I'm going to pray it slowly so that you can own the language and mean it from your heart. And by the way, if you've already invited Jesus into your heart, this would be a fantastic time to thank him, wouldn't it? Thank him for what he's done. Let's pray. Let's all pray for just a moment. And you're saying, Mark, I want to know for sure I'm forgiven. Okay, here we go. Let's pray together. Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't pay for my sin. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe his blood was a currency that paid for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to wash away my sins and make me God's child. If you can do it for the thief, you can do it for me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. I know we're crowded today, but if you just pray with me to receive Christ, I want you to get something before you leave. I've got a packet here, and inside the packet is a book I wrote that answers a lot of questions about how to be sure you're going to heaven, what happens when you pray, a DVD, and a coupon for a new Bible. Now, again, I know we're crowded, but I'd like for you to do something. Just take your talk to us card, and if you didn't get one, you can pull one out of the seat back in front of you. There's a little spot on there where you can check and says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it to guest services out in the lobby. There's a big one out there, a little one back by the coffee shop. All you got to do is just say, I pray with Mark. I promise you, they won't hassle you, stalk you, ask for your routing number. They won't, they won't even engage in conversation unless you want them to. They just want to give you the packet. Just say, I pray with Mark and take it home. Guys, thank you so much for being here. See you next Easter.